This episode is brought to you by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So create all the stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos you need with Canva. Start with one of the designer-made templates or jump ahead with the power of AI. It's a real time saver and anybody can use it. Whatever department you work in, whatever you need, Canva will help you get it done and make it look fantastic. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. The coronavirus pandemic, for many people, has created a deepening sense of dread. But there's something else that makes it feel like a one-two punch. Not only are businesses closed and a lot of people working from home, but a lot of the stuff that keeps us entertained, that gets our mind off it, has been canceled too. Theaters are dark. Concerts are postponed. And here at The Journal, we started wondering about the people whose job it is to entertain us. What are they doing now that they can't do their jobs like they usually do? During normal times, one of my favorite things to do in New York is go to the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village. My wife and I actually had seats for a show on Thursday night where I would have seen the comic Lenny Marcus. Of course, it was canceled, like everything else in New York. But I figured if I didn't have evening plans, Lenny probably didn't either. Hello, it's Ryan. Hi, Ryan. It's Lenny Marcus. Hey, how's it going? So I reached out to ask what life is like for entertainers these days. What is it? What does it mean for all your all your gigs? All gigs are done. <laughs> I think all gigs for everyone are done. Turns out things were getting pretty weird at the Comedy Cellar even before the shutdown. They were doing stuff like you know, um, there was one bucket of microphones that were Purell'd. And the other bucket hmm. was used. So you'd come off stage, you'd unplug yourself and put it in the used bucket, and then somebody would go and disinfect them. Was everybody just doing their normal sets, or was it different? Definitely uh, everybody's written a couple of jokes each about the virus. I think one of my jokes was like, all the soap has gone off the shelves. Were people even washing their hands before? What were people doing before? <laughs> you know, are we all licking tray tables? And are we just savages? On Sunday, the Comedy Cellar stopped doing shows. But Lenny's still coming up with new material. These days, it's about working from home with his wife and nearly two-year-old daughter. My wife and I are probably going to kill each other within another week. <laughs> and uh, the baby was going to kill us both in the, the week after that. <laughs> and so There are still jokes, just no checks and no audience. And if a comedian tells a joke to an empty room, did it even happen? Today on the show, life without an audience. How performers and the entertainment industry are dealing with a global pandemic. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, March 20th. Like all of us at the Wall Street Journal, our colleague Charles Passy is working from home. For him, that also means working alongside a pretty disruptive roommate. So, um, hang on one second. I just want to. I have a very noisy parrot. I want to cover him up so he won't. You won't hear that squawking in the background. Hang <laughs> no on problem. One a noisy parrot. That's incredible. Charles covers entertainment in New York City, which means his beat is almost completely shut down. 
I mean, Broadway is closed, Carnegie Hall is closed, Lincoln Center is closed, movie theater is closed. Nothing is going on in terms of live events that people can attend. I mean, literally nothing. What does that mean for their businesses? Well, it's really kind of scary. Now, of course, we are facing a situation where it's scary for all industries. But, you know, I really got an appreciation from talking to a couple of um, heads of these organizations over the past few days about what they're looking at. What they're looking at is a huge hit to revenue. Charles says for a lot of cultural institutions, things like museums, symphonies, theaters, only about half their income is earned, meaning the money that comes from ticket sales or gift shops. The rest comes from investments and, crucially, donations. Right now, no one's selling tickets, so the earned income is almost zero. But the longer-term hit could be to donations. When we come out of this pandemic, people are going to have less money to give As one cultural leader told me, I said, even if you're a billionaire, if suddenly you have half a billion dollars less, you're going to be more circumspect in your contributions. The combination of no earned income and potentially smaller donations is one reason that nonprofits are already scaling back. The Met Opera, for example, already laid off its orchestra and chorus. But for for for-profit businesses like Broadway theaters, earned income is all they have. You don't sell tickets, you don't stay in business. And just like weak companies might go bust in a downturn, Charles says the same goes for shows. The Lion Kings and the Wicked's of this world, you know, the big productions that have lasted many, many years, will probably survive. A fledgling production that might have actually been drawing some people, but, you know, was still kind of finding its footing, this will absolutely decimate them. Is there anything that they can do to adapt right now and try to find at least some way to survive? You know, a number of arts institutions and then individual artists are doing things that can be seen online. There's a comedy club, Stand Up New York, here in New York City, that is actually having performers come in one at a time to do a set in front of no people and then beaming it out to the world. And they're, they're charging $5 for it. I have some good news. I do not have uh, the coronavirus. And I cannot get. How about that, huh? I can't get the coronavirus. Because my agents told me I already have a deal with Ebola. Okay? (laughs) I already have a deal with Ebola. It's an exclusive thing. There is an off-Broadway performer, Katsura Sunshine. He's a gentleman who does a form of Japanese storytelling. And he's basically doing bits of it from his his studio apartment in New York City. I got a great show for you tonight. I actually planned a couple of stories for you for the show today. I hope you laugh. And a couple of incidents from real life. And, you know, if we can't do the show on Broadway, we do it here in Sunshine Studios. So we can't wait to get back to Broadway. Nobody is pretending that what they can do streaming will at all be able to replace the income they're losing. And as I say, right now, most of them are not even charging for it. They're doing it just as a kind of a goodwill gesture and to keep their name out there. You know, I mean, we're all kind of housebound at the moment and going a little stir-crazy. So I think for these folks, it's also a kind of um, a relief. The good thing about the world we live in is we do have the technology to essentially beam ourselves to the world. And if you're an artist, that is still one way to communicate. Late night TV is in the same situation, also in the process of figuring out how to work once they've left their studios and live audiences. Stephen Colbert recently hosted The Late Show from his bathtub. Samantha Bee did a segment from a woodshed. 
The Daily Show with Trevor Noah recently announced that it, too, would be filming remotely. So we reached out to Jordan Klepper, a comedian and field correspondent who works on The Daily Show, to hear how he and his colleagues are dealing with it. How's it going? Hey! <laughs> Live from the studio in my closet. <laughs> this is the new future. Yes, li- li- I'm live from my room that I never actually moved into. <laughs> it's been crazy trying to get like, you know, our home studio set up and like get the best audio quality we can. I feel like that's the new creativity. The Daily Show's trying to figure it out right now. Everybody's sort of trying to figure out how do you make <laughs> entertainment and or any kind of uh, <laughs> informative content uh, from your closet. The Daily Show, at first, said they would put the show on hiatus. But then they decided to try an experiment. The show would be recorded from the staff members' homes over video chat and then edited together. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. And now you're calling it the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was there a lot of debate about getting to that name? <laughs> I wasn't a part of the debate for that name. I think uh, they wanted to come up with the most cumbersome name, and I think they found it. How important is a live audience as a comedian? Well, you know, comedians are selfish people, and we constantly need reassurance that our ideas aren't only those that live in our heads uh, as far as what, what resonates. And so I think an audience helps a comedian feel better about themselves, but it also helps a comedian understand uh, what ideas uh, the mass public shares with themselves. You start to craft your material and your perspectives based on what you bring to the table, but also to what your audience responds to. Mm-hmm. It's just like immediate feedback. Yeah, it's the most exciting thing. It's why... That's why I got into all of this is, you know, when you hear an audience laugh or guffaw or immediately react, it's exciting. And then it becomes informative and helps craft your work. Normally, Jordan spends a lot of his time on The Daily Show out in the field, going to rallies and interviewing people in person. It's eight hours before Donald Trump arrives. It's raining and there are people here. How's it going? Good to see you. Good to see you again. And a week ago when suddenly rallies got canceled, and then a few days ago when it was like, uh, oh, flying is not a feasible situation, it became pretty realistic that, okay, traditional field work is not going to happen in the next few months. Um, And the same thing goes for studio work. And so art comes out of restriction, and I think The Daily Show immediately got a ton of restrictions. So what does that mean then for you specifically as somebody who normally does field assignments? I mean, how are you going to do that at all? I don't... I don't know. I, I think, you know, every day myself, uh, other correspondents, other producers are pitching potential workarounds, uh, which have to balance interesting creative ideas with functionality and safety. We've been pitching ideas as wild as, you know, maybe we get one of those, what do they call them, cherry pickers that they use to fix wires, get on top of that, drive down the street, and do man-on-the-street remotes from a giant cherry picker. Uh, I don't know. Man-on-the-street via cherry picker. We'll see if they pull that off. But Jordan and The Daily Show aren't alone in this dilemma. There are thousands of performers around the country who are also looking for workarounds. We called up two other artists in New York City who are working on ways to reach an audience now that in-person performances aren't an option. Hi, I'm Nathan Vickery. I'm a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. Uh, I'm one of 12 cellists in the orchestra. And another one of those 12 cellists? My name is Sumire Kudo. 
Sumila and Nathan usually sit next to each other in their regular performance space in New York's Lincoln Center. Sometimes they even share the same piece of sheet music during performances. And that's why it feels strange that they're apart now. You know, I'm used to playing with hundreds of other people and all of a sudden just me and my cello. Last week, the New York Philharmonic decided to suspend all concerts through the end of the month. Sumile says she saw it coming, even before the official decision. I heard that the Met Opera was going to shut down, and the Met Museum was going to shut down. So I was like, yeah, well, only a matter of time. The hall seats about 2,800 people, and it's usually quite full. So, yeah, way too many people for where we're at now. But just because shutting down the concert hall was practical and maybe even expected, it didn't make it any easier for Nathan and Sumile. Right now, they each have their regular salary and benefits, at least until the end of March. But what they've already lost is a major reason they love their jobs, the audience. I mean, that's really what we, what we live for, in, in a sense. It's this, there's a real interaction. There's an interactive quality of performing. It's the sort of thing where an audience, it's not that they know what they're providing, but there are so often performances where the energy from an audience is really electrifying for us as musicians. There are moments to be able to look out during the performance. You might see tears in someone's eyes. You see people smiling. I can think in a recent performance, someone just like so excited about hearing uh, a performance of a piece they'd never heard before. They were just like electrified. Those kinds of reactions really keep us going and really mean a lot to us. Like many of us, Sumile and Nathan are both stuck at home right now. So they started to brainstorm about how to keep on playing music for people. And since lots of other jobs are going remote, they figured they'd try that too. After the break, Nathan and Sumile try a musical experiment. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. Welcome back. Sumile Kudo and Nathan Vickery, two cellists from the New York Philharmonic, we're trying to figure out how to play together for an audience when they're stuck in their apartments. They came up with an idea, a remote duet. Nathan would play his part from his Upper West Side apartment, and Sumile would play hers from her Harlem apartment. And we're going to be then merging the audio together. So we'll be able to actually play something together in a way, even though it's sort of remote. 
As for which duet they'd play, they wanted to pick something familiar, something that felt like the comfort food of classical music for a cellist. So they chose the first movement of Sonata No. 10 in G major by the composer Jean-Baptiste Barriere, a French composer from the 1700s. He's kind of a, a Baroque music era composer. If you're a cellist, you have heard of the piece and something that you can relate to very easily, so comforting. I love playing this piece. It's just beautiful, simple, elegant music. Doing a digital duet might sound easy, but it's not. Normally, Sumile and Nathan can take cues from both each other and the conductor on pacing. When they're playing separately, they don't get any of that. It's like they're each crafting an intricate puzzle piece that needs to fit exactly with the piece next to it, but you're doing it all blindfolded. So Sumile is playing this part. And Nathan's playing this part. These two separate parts need to be combined and lay on top of each other perfectly in order to make the actual song. We've been trying all afternoon, trying to make this, but um, of course, the timing is different, the sound is different, the space is different, and everything. You're really making me realize how great live music <laughs> is. Sumile recorded her part of the duet first, and then sent it to Nathan. Then Nathan recorded his part. It took him around 12 tries before he got it just right. Eight times to get the tempo to match with Sumile, and four additional times because his new office mate, his five-month-old daughter Catherine, was interrupting. I can't tell you the number of times I played and then stopped the recorder. saying, all right, do it again, gotta do it again. Wasn't good enough, wasn't good enough. Eventually, they got it. And the two tracks were digitally combined into a seamless duet, as if they were performed in the same room. So, without further ado, a little taste of the socially distanced New York Philharmonic. What's the meaning that you hope the people who hear it from you will get from it? I hope people actually have some hope, you know. In this difficult time, I hope that people hear it and are encouraged to know that the music doesn't stop. You know, our lives are kind of on hold, but we're all still out here thinking about wanting to create and play music for people. That's what we do. That's what we, we care about. That's what we believe in. I guess I don't want people to forget about it. (laughs) Like, want people to come to the concert again, you know, when this is all over. And I just can't wait.
That's all for today, Friday, March 20th. To see a video of Nathan and Sumile playing their full remote duet, go to on.wsj.com duet. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. Like the performers in today's episode, our show is now also made entirely remotely by Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, Rob Zipko, and Griffin Tanner. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music from Peter Leonard, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Nicole Pasolka and Aaron Aylesworth, and to the New York Philharmonic. Additional mixing this week by Sam Baer. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.